Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Dr. Marilee Fullerton, the Minister of Long-Term Care for Ontario, joins us to talk about changes coming to long-term care in Ontario. This weekend, electricity rates went up in Ontario. How come? Are we pushing too much of our COVID-19 death onto the kids and grandkids of tomorrow? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Hope you had a great Halloween non-event and extra hour of sleep from a time change weekend. You should be in great shape to watch the U.S. election. Now that's scary. It'll be everything Halloween wasn't. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Yeah. Uh, it took us a little while, but we got there. Uh, good afternoon. It is 12-11. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson, jacked up on another hour of sleep. Get ready. It's going to be an amazing show. It's going to fly by like that. Uh, or maybe this is just the Halloween candy kicking in. I'm not sure. Uh, it is uh, another Scott Thompson home show. Thanks to Will. Keeping his, uh, Will Erskine keeping us on the air between the pipes back at the station. Uh, feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Facebook and Twitter. You can hear the podcast edition of the commentary there. Uh, you know, talking about you can take away the event. You can't take away the spirit. Uh, isn't that right? We got there anyway. Uh, feel free to weigh in on that. We would love to hear from you. All right. Uh, during Premier Doug Ford's uh, daily news conference, of course, the announcement being made, Ontario going to commit to a four-hour care for long-term care homes. Uh, to talk more about all of this, tell us what it all means and who it affects. Let's bring in Dr. Marilee Fullerton, Minister of Long-Term Care for Ontario, and is with us now. Minister, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I, I, I am. Thank you so much. I, we've got a lot of work to do, and we've been working very hard. So uh, I, uh, thank you for your interest. I know that uh, you're on a busy schedule right now, so I'll try to get to this as quick as I can. What does this mean? Who does this affect? How does this affect people in these uh, facilities? So we really put the residents at the center of our long-term care modernization, and we said we would repair and rebuild an advanced long-term care, and that's exactly what this, uh, this announcement does. It really provides more care for our residents that are really our most vulnerable uh, people. They're, they're in long-term care. This is four hours on average of daily direct care uh, provided through either nursing or personal support workers to our residents in long-term care. And we are, unlike other previous governments that did not implement this, our government has a plan to implement this with hard targets uh, over the next few years because we need to build up the staffing. We need tens of thousands of, of personal support workers and registered practical nurses and registered nurses. Um, we're doing this as a long-term uh, project, understanding the critical piece that um, the care provides for our long-term care residents, their quality of life. And also, the other piece that's, that's separate from this is our emergency measures that we've been taking to shore up homes that... Uh, are really being um, hit by COVID-19. Some of them that are 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 um, more more um, hard hit than than others. But this is this announcement today is a longer term strategy than the emergency measures we've been taking for for COVID-19. 
Uh, this sounds like a massive task, Minister. Um, I, I think you're up from 2.7 hours per day to four hours. That's, you know, my goodness, quite an increase. How are you going to do that? I mean, just even with the bodies alone that you're going to need to hire. Well, this is going to require a, a cross-government effort, and everyone working together to do this, our colleges, um, our, our variety of ministers, all involved in trying to make sure that we pull the necessary levers to create um, you know, uh, the attraction to long-term care, retain people once they're trained, and once they're, once they're trained, make sure that they're provided with a, a um, meaningful and, and valued uh, role. And I think this just speaks to very much about our, our transformational vision for long-term care, a 21st century long-term care system um, that is modernized and puts the resident at the center that values the staff um, that support our residents and make sure that we all work together. It is an ambitious plan. There's no doubt about that. But uh, we've been taking measures to, to shore up our homes uh, on an emergency basis with COVID-19. But this is a longer-term plan. It will it'll take everyone uh, working together to make this happen. But we, uh, we will be setting hard targets so that we can reach these incrementally. And uh, we've all got to get this done. Our population is aging. Um, the, the imperative is now. And uh, we're the government that is committed to doing this, finally. Does, th- does this mean more money and security for PSWs in the future? We certainly know how they've had to work at various homes, which obviously only contributed to the spread of all of this. So does this mean life will be better? This is a better and, and will become a more preferred occupation for, for people, an, an option? Absolutely. We know that with previously to this, personal support workers, um, half of them would leave during the training. And then the half that did graduate, half of those would leave the, the area of work in within two years. So we have to do both. We have to attract people to this sector, and we have to retain them and make the, the environment that they're working in a supportive environment. And through our initiatives, you've heard of the pandemic pay, and then we added in $461 million to support a $3 an hour increase for personal support workers. And I think... No, our personal support workers are really the backbone of, uh, of long-term care and the heart of our homes. They provide the direct care. Uh, our nurses as well and our registered practical nurses, tens of thousands of new jobs uh, are going to be created. We need tens of, tens of thousands of new workers for this area. And so it is about rebuilding, repairing, and advancing long-term care. You might have heard me say that before, but, uh, you know, it really goes beyond words. Our government is putting the dollars in to, to uh, support our personal support workers, uh, $461 million for that most recent increase of $3 per hour. Uh, the other um, two weeks ago, $540 million more to address issues uh, for staffing, infection prevention and control, and the resources that our homes need to operate and changing the environment uh, of long-term care to demonstrate the support for those who work there. And this, of course, was on top of the $243 million that we put in as an emergency. But this is about people. When it comes right down to it, how do we get our residents the care they need? How do we support the staff and make the environment a place where they want to stay and work? I know you so have to is- work... I know you have to leave. One last quick question. The NDP is always talking about this should not be uh, private. There shouldn't be private money in these facilities. There should be uh, public and, and no private uh, uh, involvement. Your response to that? Well, it's about the residents. 
everything that we do has to be about the residents, whether it's getting, uh, making sure the staff is there to support them, making sure that the environment is the is the right one to attract people to this this field. It is such a meaningful and purposeful field. I, I as a, as I, I've mentioned before, I've been a family doctor for 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 decades, and I understand the importance of the the human element. We need to make sure that people are are genuinely cared for, and it's about the residents. It is not about uh, the ownership of the home. There's there's many many variables if you look through the studies. This is about making sure that our residents at the centre, and if we keep that focus, we will come out with the right solution. Dr. Marilee Fullerton has been with us, Minister of Long-Term Care for Ontario. Doctor, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you so much. You take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, this weekend, uh, hydro rates went up. Uh, the average customer seeing a near 2.2% uh, point uh, increase. Uh, Ontarians do have the option of switching to a time of use or tiered pricing system. What does that all mean? Why is this happening now? Let's bring in Brian Hill, online writer and researcher, investigative reporter for Global News, and he is with us now. Brian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So what exactly happened this weekend? So uh, the uh, Ontario Energy Board, uh, which uh, kind of regulates uh, electricity prices in the province, has increased uh, prices for the year. So they've said that rates need to go up uh, by about 2% in order to essentially recover the costs, uh, increased costs that uh, it costs to produce electricity in the province. So that's going to affect people's bills. Um, and they'll start to see that uh, on their next monthly bill. Um, also on, on October 31st, uh, so also this weekend, we saw the, the pandemic, uh, sort of that discount, that pandemic discount right. that had been offered. Um, that, that's now expired. So basically, um, if you are a time-of-use customer, which almost everybody is, um, 5 million or so customers uh, use that uh, in Ontario, um, the uh, you're, you're going to see an increase on your next hydro bill as a result of this. So how is that going to affect those of us that are working from home? Uh, well, it could be significant depending on when you use your electricity. So the, the during the pandemic, people's prices, uh, the cost of electricity or the price has been frozen at, uh, well, it changed at one point during the pandemic, but essentially it's been frozen at this fixed rate of, uh, let's say, 12.8 cents per kilowatt hour. Uh, regardless of the time of day. Um, but now, on your next bill, what you're going to see is that, that uh, these on-peak hours, which most Ontarians will be familiar with, um, that price is going to jump from $0.12.8 cents to $0.21.7. Cents. So a pretty big jump. And that's uh, between 7 in the morning and 11 in the morning, and then again from 5 in the afternoon to 7 in the evening. So there's, you know, th- those... If you're working at home during those hours or at home and using electricity, the price you pay for that's going to be increased significantly. Now, obviously, there's a couple of uh, options here, time of use versus tiered pricing. How do you break that down? And, and is one more advantage, uh, more advantageous to those that are working from home? It, it could be. So uh, for the first time ever, uh, customers that have smart meters, that's like the, you know, that allow you to you know, recognize what time electricity is being used, now have the option of switching over to this tiered pricing plan. It's always existed, but you've never really had the option of switching. And uh, now that now you can, and that essentially fixes prices. 
at a fixed rate and uh, of 12.6 cents per kilowatt hour. It's about the same as what you were paying during that pandemic pricing. But depending on the time of day you use, how much electricity you use, when you use it, it, it could save you money. It might not. There, there is a way to find out. You can essentially go online, go to the Ontario Energy Board's website, type bill calculator, and you can select your company, utility company. You can, you know, uh, select which type of uh, uh, bill, uh, bill structure you want, and you can compare the two to see uh, and punch in the numbers even from your last bill you know, on your usage to see if you'll save money. You might, you might not. The savings won't be huge either way. Uh, for an average customer, but you could save some money. We certainly know how the electricity file was a bone of contention uh, with the last government, uh, and, and this government and, and others were saying that they could do something about this. Is there really anything that can be done about these deals that were signed way back when? It depends on who you ask. Um, I, I mean, uh, the short answer to that is not much. There's not yeah. much that can be done. And, um, you know, there are some things that can be done, um, but it, it's a question of priorities. Right now, Ontario is subsidizing electricity bills to the tune of about $6 billion a year. $6 wow. billion. It's an enormous amount of money. It's more money than the province spends on universities and colleges each year, more money than it spends on transportation, more money than it spends on pharmacare, more money than it spends on agriculture, it's more money than it spends on many, many, many other government programs. Like by, refinan- by refinancing uh, the electricity yeah. problem. Yeah. Oh. Taxpayers, essentially. Yeah. So everybody yeah. gets this bill, this now on your bills under the Ford government. It shows up at the Ontario electricity rebate. And it's a, now it's a 33% subsidy uh, across the board for all customers. That subsidy plus the cost of some other subsidies for rural northern residents, low-income customers... Those are costing the government, or taxpayers rather, about $6 billion a year. Um, and that's really, that's the only, that's the major tool or mechanism that the government has used to lower hydro rates, is essentially to shift the cost from electricity customers to taxpayers. Um, you know, that started under the Wynn government, the Liberals, and it's continued under the Ford government. Are other provinces having the same issues with their electricity systems that Ontario has had over the last 10, 15 years? Um, I mean, so we are seeing costs increase in other provinces. You've seen cost increases in, in British Columbia. You've seen cost increases in, uh, in Manitoba, for example. Um, you've, you've, you know, the cost of electricity and energy in general in the Atlantic provinces is quite high. Um, you know, average spending for households on energy is higher than it is in Ontario even. Um, but the, the issue with Ontario really is that uh, for, for a long time, um, there, there wasn't a, a lot of investment in infrastructure or uh, purchasing of energy. Then, as everyone knows, or many people know, um, the previous government launched this uh, green energy initiative, the Green Energy Act. And as a result of that, they basically said, well, we're going to start to purchase a lot of new electricity. They also, you know, got the province off of coal-fired electricity or coal-powered electricity. And so in order to accomplish those goals, they they had to buy new power. And they did so through a number of programs, Um, wind, solar, natural gas, nuclear, 
Um, you know, we're refurbishing two nuclear plants in Ontario right now. That's going to cost almost $30 billion. Um, you know, but, but there were issues with those, those programs too, right? And the, the Auditor General yeah. in Ontario has talked a lot about that. And essentially how advice was ignored, how the contracts weren't, uh, you know, they didn't, they didn't basically purchase the, the power properly. They should have been through competitive bids. And all of those issues have cost Ontarians uh, billions of dollars, right? I mean, Kathleen Wynne admitted it herself. And, and yeah. you know, so, so, you know, there were mistakes made, absolutely. Um, but then the Liberals would argue that the investments were necessary uh, in order to, to, you know, create a new modern system and um, in order to make the system more environmentally friendly to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and th- those sorts of things. Yes, investments are necessary, but that doesn't mean you have to overspend. But that's another issue. So there really is no end in this, is there, Brian? I mean, this is just going to continue on forever. Rates are going to go up. Um, yeah. They'll keep going up. Um, I, I, I think un- unless, I mean, you know, I, I think that's a question of government policy and priority. The Ford government has said that it's working on a plan. They've, they've been saying that for a long time. They've been saying that since before the last election. Um, but uh you know, they're working on a plan to lower rates, and it's theoretically possible, but the question is, how do you accomplish that, right? Yeah. Do you, you know, a recent government report said that there are really no more cost-saving opportunities to be had uh, by changing or canceling the contract signed by the Liberals. Um, you know, the, the Ford government, when it came in, right away canceled these renewable energy contracts, so it's quite well known at the time. And that would save some money. They restructured the financing of the of the way that the the wind government had set up the financing for the subsidies. That could save about four billion dollars over the long term. Um, but electricity file is huge. You know, Ontarians spend yeah. more than twenty billion a year on electricity. So multiply that by fifteen years, it's a lot of money. Um, and yeah, you know, but the, the the way the system is designed right now, it's it's. There are planned rate increases going forward for the foreseeable future. Brian Hill has been with us, online writer and researcher, investigative reporter with Global News, uh, talking about uh, electricity rates going up this past weekend. Brian, thanks for the time and insight as always. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Tomorrow, uh, everybody's getting their helmets on and, and ready for the U.S. Uh, presidential election. Did you see the shots of uh, Biden's bus uh, getting getting sideswiped by the uh, pickup trucks and the big flags and stuff? Monster trucks moving in to, to run the Biden out of the state. Man, unbelievable. Uh, it's yeah, they'll get through it. Don't worry. Uh, let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. He is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, I hope you are too. Thank you, Scott. Man, a lot of shenanigans going on in uh, the last few years, certainly leading up to this campaign and now this campaign. What are your thoughts about what we saw over the weekend with the Biden bus? Yeah, it's hard to know exactly. You know, I don't want to speculate. It it, it doesn't look good on the surface. I'm not going to deny that. But at the same time, Scott, I'm really not sure. Um, you know, it, it's certainly the early reports, and the reason why the FBI is looking into this is because there is some cause for concern, and that concern is specifically related to the fact 
that you know they it looks like trump supporters have played a potential role or some did in maneuvering this bus or disrupting the pattern of this bus you know is this the first time i've ever heard of this before in the us or elsewhere no but it's awful and it's not obviously something that you want to have happen you know in any election or in any country including our own so i think the fbi's right to obviously look into it and i think they have to but at the same time, to speculate what it is, what exactly happened, or whether there's some legitimacy to it or not, I'm just not sure. Uh, legitimacy to it or, or not. I mean, at the end of the day, it's intimidation, to say the very least. I mean, uh, you know, I've been on this planet a few years. I've never seen anything like this uh, before. Um, I, I, I was well, totally no. shocked. Uh, and, and I mean, I guess, true. you know, I mean, is it officially organized? Is it, I don't know, who cares, really? At the end of the day, it's unlawful behavior, is it not? If that's what it is, yes. And that's why the FBI is looking into it. And no, I disagree. It's happened in Europe. So it's not It's not the first time this has ever happened. Maybe in Europe, but I mean, I've certainly never seen it happen in North America before. Maybe it hasn't been reported uh, to this extent, but I've, I've, I've never seen anything like this in a, in a North American election. And, and again, I mean, is there something that is different that you're seeing and that, that I'm seeing? Again, I'm not saying that Trump told people to do this. I'm not nope. saying... Uh, any of that? I, I, what, it, this just very much concerns me. Even though it's not my country, it concerns me, and it all also uh, sets the tone. What's going to happen after the election? I mean, my goodness! I mean, this is just has gotten out of hand, hasn't it? Maybe again, it depends what it is. We have to wait till the FBI reports specifically on it. But no, I agree from you. From just a a very you know very light point of view, it looks it looks really bad. I'm not questioning it, and. It obviously worries a lot of people, especially those who have feared that if the election result goes one way or the other, either towards Trump or Biden, or Biden, that there'll be violence on the streets. And while I certainly don't think it's going to resemble Armageddon, I really don't. I mean, obviously there will be pockets of issues and pockets of violence that will occur no matter who wins. I think that's understandable. Yeah. And I think businesses are also correct to protect themselves, which means that in major areas, in big cities, small cities, elsewhere, they're boarding up their stores just in case to ensure that if things do get out of hand and there is violence, either from the political right, the political left, or just people who are out there to cause dismay, to cause, you know, a terrible disruption to society, ruin things, destroy, you know, sort of follow an anarchistic type of point of view, it's right to protect that way. But no, I mean, from that standpoint, I agree with you. We've never seen anything quite like this before. But then again, the last few years, I don't think we've ever seen anything quite like what's been happening in the United States in their political system. My, it certainly isn't. It certainly is divisive, and it's it's going to be fascinating to see what does happen after uh, the election on Tuesday. Um, can anybody call this? If I was a betting man, I don't think I'd put money on either side of this. I mean, I think the president can easily win this. It, he can win it. And um, aside from the fact that some places like 5380 are sort of showing that, you know, that the odds are very, very low, if you actually look at a variety of aggregates, it actually shows that it's getting very tight. I'll give you an easy one. Real Clear Politics, their national average, and that's an aggregate that brings together, aside from what the critics say, right-leaning polls, left-leaning polls, independents, big polls, small polls, 
polls associated with newspapers, magazines, etc. Just go look at it. You'll see there's a long, long list. It had originally, Scott, um, Biden was actually ahead. If you put all of them together as an aggregate, he was ahead by about 10.3% just around October the 11th. And I just happen to know this date offhand because I'm just writing in my column for this week. As of today, right now, November the 2nd, that aggregate margin in three weeks has gone from 10.3 to 6.5. That's a near four-point drop in three weeks. I don't care how you slice it. I don't care how you spin it. And I'm in the world of spin. That's an enormous drop. And it means something may potentially be going on. Now, on, one, on the one hand, it could mean that all the convention, conventional polls and conventional wisdom were accurate because a lot of the big places, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, CNN, others, are all showing double-digit leads for Joe Biden. And even though, obviously, the only thing that matters is the Electoral College, not, not the popularity vote, generally speaking, they go hand-in-hand, hand, but not always, as we saw just four years ago with Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, and as we saw more also quite recently in 2000 with George W. Bush and Al Gore. So there's that little bit, and then you look on the other side, you have polls like Rasmussen, Investors Business Daily, and several others who are showing margins of error. Rasmussen now has it at one point, and some have it at four points and five points, including Emerson as well, is another one I'm just thinking of offhand. I'm sorry, but no matter how you look at it, a range between one to 12 points, no matter whether you agree with the polls, the polling company, or you believe that the methodology, the science behind polling is wrong. All of that just goes to show that somebody is an outlier, and, a, and badly someone is an outlier. The question is who? Could all the small and medium-sized polls, Scott, have actually caught on to trends about Donald Trump that the big polls, the conventional polls, are just not looking at? Or, you know, are we looking at problems that we've seen for years, not to keep rambling on, where people lie when polling companies call in or they provide false information right. or they don't tell, you know, they don't want to really say exactly how they're going to vote and what they're going to do. When you put all of that together, well, a lot of people have been thinking for a while, or if you just sit and read the New York Times, you'll just believe that Joe Biden is way ahead and this is going to be, he's just going to cruise to victory. I'm sorry, the polls, big, large, small, you know, sorry, large, small, medium-sized all of them are showing wild, wild trends to the point where I think this election may be extremely hard to call. And yes, Donald Trump does have a chance at a second term. Uh, and so we certainly remember what happened uh, in the 2016 election, what all the polls were saying then. And then everybody sat and watched on on uh, election night. The results come in with their with their jaws on the floor. Uh, yeah. That being said, I have questioned many pollsters since then, and they said that they've allowed for whatever it is uh, and, and adjusted their polling accordingly. But again, I don't know if I'd want to bet on this. I certainly wouldn't. Um, and again, not just because of what I issued. You know, if you go to... You know, 538, go to Nate Silver. He has the lead. I think the margin's about 8.5% today, that being Biden ahead of Trump by 8.5%. Anything above certainly five or six, you would think if you follow conventional wisdom and previous U.S. presidential elections, that should be a clear road to victory, not in terms of the popular vote, which we, everyone always knew Biden was going to get. I mean, look, he's going to get a bigger margin of victory in the two most populous states, New York and California, which have both been under Democratic control, meaning the Democratic presidential candidates 
have won this, these states consistently since, well, in one case, 1984, that's New York, and since 1988, when, um, you, when Ronald Reagan was the last one to win California in 84 as a Republican, and 88, George H.W. Bush didn't actually win that one. So when you put all of that together, you know, the Democrats were always going to be ahead because the populist states tend to have big leads over them. But generally speaking, Republicans win more states overall because they get a lot of the smaller states that, yes, have elector less electoral votes per state, but when you put them all together, they create a pretty serious block. And if Trump is able to win a lot of the battleground states that we currently see, Texas, Arizona, uh, some of the Rust Belt, Wisconsin, um, Illinois is up, Pennsylvania is up, Minnesota in some polls, which is a Democratic stronghold, that even is sort of margin of error in some polls and a big lead for Biden and others. When you put all of it together, I'm with you. I wouldn't want to put money on anyone right now. Is this election about what team you're on? Is it about policy or is this about character, about personality? In other words, is this an election where will, where people will just follow what they normally do, their political beliefs and such, and either go one way or the other? Or is this an election where people are, are, are judging character, uh, divisiveness versus uniting? Uh, is that accurate? Well, there's nothing to do. It's nothing to do with policy this time around. It really yeah, is. If you, yeah. unless you put COVID nineteen and the way that Donald Trump handled it as the only guide to your vote, which I don't think most Americans are, I think a lot of this has to do with character. You're right. Yeah. Uh, certainly, in terms of political allegiance, I don't disagree with you, Scott. Uh, thus far, I think it's pretty clear to say that a lot of Republicans, anyway, are going to vote for Trump whether they like the man or not. I've seen some polls, and you've probably seen and maybe even mentioned them on the air, that show anywhere between 90 to 93 percent of all Republicans are going to vote for Donald Trump no matter what. So there's no way on earth, especially because he's not going to get numbers like that if you put the whole country together, and he will get some Democrats, Democratic support, there's no way they all like this man or all necessarily want to vote for him. But in the end, he is the Republican presidential candidate, and they would rather have a Republican in the House rather than a Democrat like Joe Biden, who, while not a bad person overall, is older, you know, has a vice president who could, you know, take over from any time, who's far more left-wing than he is. And more importantly, the Democratic Party is way off to the left these days, where a lot of radicals or very, you know, far-left progressives are basically controlling the agenda, and for Biden to get things through, he needs to appease them. I'm not saying the Republicans are perfect by any means. They've got their, you know, their nuts and kooks as well. They, they absolutely do. But really, I think that the, you know, the Democratic Party and the left in the U.S. has really gone way, way offside. I know some Democrats privately who I don't even know if publicly a lot of them have said much of anything. They're frustrated by what they see because this is not the Democratic Party they remember. And in and fairness, in, you know, in the reverse, there are Republicans I know who say this is not the party of Reagan or Goldwater. This is completely different. So politics has changed a lot. So I think a lot of it has to do with former political allegiance or, pre, or current pre political allegiance. Character may have something to do with it and possibly 
fear of the unknown. I mean, do you just dance with the devil that brought you, even if the devil is Satan right now, as some people probably think of Trump that way, which isn't fair, but I'm sure they do. Or do you look towards someone like Joe Biden, who's going to bring in an agenda that there is no question of will be extremely left-wing and change the whole nature of the way the U.S. looks at individual rights, freedoms, capitalism, how government is operated. They might stack the Supreme Court. There's a variety of unknowns and wild cards that, yes, never-Trumpers and anti-Trumpers are willing to vote for and say they'll settle later, but I think that certainly a lot of Republicans are just not willing to do, much the same way that a lot of Democrats will not move over to Trump. They're just going to stay with Biden, because whether they like him or not, they feel safer with that sort of ideology, even though they know their party is very, very different than it was even 15, 20 years ago. When will we see the results of this election, Michael? It's a fascinating question. You're not going to see it on November 3rd. I know some people are, are hoping there they're going to they're going to have their popcorn, their, you know, their beer, their soda, their sandwiches, whatnot, and they're all going to be sitting there saying it's going to end right away. Here's the problem. Someone will be ahead on November 3rd or the morning of November 4th, let's put it that way. There's no question of that. The issue is mail-in ballots. There is anywhere between, I don't have the figure sitting in front of me, anywhere between 80 to 95 million mail-in ballots are still on their way, and not all of them have been counted. Some have, for sure, but that's why a number of states, including Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, uh, sorry, Pennsylvania and North Carolina and one other, have all gone to the U.S. Supreme Court to try to get extensions so that some of these mail-in ballots, which some of which will dribble in after November 3rd, can be counted. In some cases, they're allowing it. North Carolina, they are. In some cases, they're not, which includes Wisconsin. So I don't think we're going to know for a while because you have mm. that issue Plus, you have the possibility of court challenges. Yeah. I'm sure there are a lot of lawyers who are grinding their teeth right now in excitement, realizing that they can issue challenges, either at the federal level or state by state. Plus, you would think that if the election is close, it will probably go to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, which I would mm. imagine does not want to be anywhere near this election result, knowing what happened with the hanging Chad controversy in 2000 between Bush and Gore, they realize that they may have to get involved if it's close and make a decision or force, you know, states to count by hand one by one or mm. whatever they sort of choose. There's Michael Tobe has been with us. Play. It's going to take a while. Michael Tobe has been with us. Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to The Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. I'm just playing back that conversation with uh, we had with Michael Tobe uh, in my head there uh, uh, just a few minutes ago, and you know I remember watching the thing with the whole Biden, uh, the Biden uh, Joe Biden's campaign bus, and all of a sudden the pickup trucks with the flags and the big tires and people sideswiping each other and and. Uh, and and you know i was just uh i i was questioning i was questioning michael's uh um Anal uh, analysis of it and saying, well, we got to wait and see what the FBI said. And like, well, w w what are we missing here? What, what uh, in that picture is not, well, maybe everybody in the bus was antagonizing the people in the pickup trucks and that was the retaliation. I don't know. Um, but I, I think when we, we are, are to a point in North America and, you know, I guess Michael had said that it happened before in Europe, uh, I, 
perhaps it has. I've certainly never heard of it happening in North America. But boy, oh boy, when it's got to that stage, it's, my goodness, is is this how we want things to work? How can anybody be proud of this sort of activity? Uh, that being said, uh, hopefully tomorrow it'll, uh, well, it will. Well, we don't know because I guess it'll take them a while to count the ballots. Um, uh, now they're saying results not for another uh, couple of days after the election. Uh, if it is, of course, close and mail-in ballots come into play here. All right, uh, we'll talk about that and future debt in Canada with Marvin Ryder, business professor at Group School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Marvin, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm fine, uh, thank you. Glad to be with you. What are your thoughts on what we're seeing coming out of the south of the border uh, this weekend and heading into the last day of campaigning? Well, it comes as no shock to anyone that America has become a very polarized country. You're, you're either with me or you're against me, and, and those feelings are getting deeper and deeper and deeper. Uh, the, the bus, the Biden bus that was forced off the road, yeah, that concerns me, but what's really going to concern me is what happens tomorrow. You know, I worry, I just worry that armed people are going to show up at polling stations, and even attempt to intimidate people. In other words, you walk up, who are you going to vote for? Oh, you're voting for Biden? I got a gun for you. Or, or vice versa, you're voting for Trump? Well, I got a gun for you. We've never seen something like this, and I'm really, really hoping that cooler heads prevail tomorrow. And what will help us, Scott, is that in 2016, 130 million votes for president were cast. 130 million votes were cast. As of today, 100 million votes have already been cast in this presidential election. So we may not have a huge walk-up crowd tomorrow, and my worries about intimidation may not come about, or we may be setting a record. Maybe tomorrow when we add it all up, there'll be 150 million people vote, again, because, you know, I really want my guy to win and I really want your guy to lose. People may be so, so engaged in a way that we've never seen before in an election. And I think what concerned me over the video footage of the Biden bus thing, you know, everybody's talking about, as you mentioned, what's going to happen with the results after uh, Tuesday. And, well, you know, the president, since the beginning of all this, has questioned whether he will even accept these results or not. And then you see this sort of action and you're thinking, my goodness, is this a sign of what's to come after the election? Well, what we should all be hoping for, and uh, this isn't our election, we're just bystanders here in Canada, but what, what we really, really should hope for is a clear result by midnight tomorrow night. What do I mean by a clear result? That you need 270 to win the presidency, but that somebody, either Trump or Biden, get 306, 304, something with a three in front of it, and by midnight that night, even if there's a few states that we need to count, and you have to consider whether the votes will be Count, this will count or that count, so on and so forth. Even if there's a couple of court challenges, it is so clear that it doesn't make a difference. The concern is that at midnight, somebody's got 274, the other person's got 266, and the way one state twists can make all the difference. Then you're going to see this go on for weeks and weeks and weeks. Lawsuits, counter-lawsuits, you know, almost back to the hanging chads you can remember from 2000 involving George W. Bush. That isn't good for anybody. It's not good for the markets. It's not good for, for the United States at all. And then, again, this feeling that Mr. Trump says, well, I'm just going to stay in office. I'm going to say you tried to steal the election from me. This, you know, this is supposed to be the home of democracy. America typically sends observers to other people's elections to make sure things go well. <laughs> you know, maybe we need to send them to the American election. I just hope for a clear outcome, whatever it is. 
Uh, whatever it is, will the president call fraud either way? What sort of challenges can he he pose if he doesn't accept the the outcome? Yeah, so I, I just think it's worth remembering uh, that the president is the president until the third Monday or third, third Tuesday in January. Um, I, I think if it's clear, in other words, if there were 300-something votes and they weren't for Donald Trump, then, then he will accept defeat. But will he accept defeat graciously? Again, my best case scenario is Donald Trump spends the next two and a half months on a golf course in Florida. On the other hand, he does strike me as the kind of man who carries grudges. And he's got two and a half months while he's still got power. The Republicans have two and a half months of owning the Senate, even if they wind up losing control at the end of the day. What do they want to do in those two and a half months? Are they going to challenge Roe v. Wade, the abortion legislation? Are they going to go after the Affordable Care Act? You know, what else? What other tariffs? You know, I've always wanted to put a tariff on Korea. Here it comes, you know. I, I, he doesn't necessarily make policy based on long-standing ideas it tends to be how he's feeling at the moment and if he's feeling shall we call it peckish uh, after losing the election who knows where his wrath might go so that's another thing to consider but it's not a reason to vote for him it's just a reason to be concerned about the after effects what about the factor of mail-in ballots i mean it's certainly not a first time i think it's one in four were mailed in uh, last election obviously this time it's a record amount which could be a sign of of uh, people wanting to get to the polls early or even COVID-19 and, and, and voting during a pandemic. How much will that be a factor? It, it's just so hard to tell because of the quote-unquote mail-in ballot varies state by state by state. In other words, although it's a federal election, the rules that govern what happens in any one state, because remember, you've got this electoral college, you're actually electing the people in the electoral college who ultimately then vote for president in January, um, it's governed by the state. So, uh, And another thing, we, we tend to use this word mail-in ballot uh, when some of them are simply dropped off. So in other words, I could take my ballot, there's a special marked box, I can go drop it off, and in a sense, I'm mailing in my my votes in an envelope and I'm putting it into what looks like a mailbox, but it's actually all organized by the state as opposed to putting it in a mailbox. And then you've got to get the U.S. Postal Service to deliver it. And everybody has different rules. For instance, in Pennsylvania, um, they, they are allowing three days, as long as your ballot is postmarked tomorrow, they're allowing three days for it to arrive in one of the counting stations. And that even includes, and here's another great issue, all the people who are in the armed forces. In theory, they get a vote, but I'm stationed in Afghanistan. I'm stationed in Iraq or some other place. You've got to allow my vote to arrive. And so Donald Trump, who on one hand would love to have the forces vote for him, um, does he want to try to cut them off? And those are going to be the challenges we're going to see in the days ahead if it is close. If it is overwhelming, then it doesn't really won't, won't make a difference one way or the other. So um, is this too close to call at this point? We certainly remember what the polling showed in the last campaign in yep. 2016 and how it was off. Uh, pollsters have said they've made adjustments around all of that to yep. to account for it. Is this going to be too close to call at this point? So um, I, I know you didn't call today to ask me for my prediction, but here it goes. Oh, let's hear it. No, go for it. I, I think that uh, Mr. Biden is going to win, and I think he's going to win with more than 300 of the Electoral College votes. Um, uh, yes, there are some... So states. you think it's going to be a blowout? 
No, a, a blowout is what happened with Reagan Mondale, where Reagan won 49 of the 50 states. Walter Mondale only won his home state. I don't think it's going to be a blowout, but I think it's going to be decisive, and that it'll be something like you know 306 to I don't know what the total is to uh, two two I don't know what that's up to two uh, 35 or something like that. It'll be clear and it'll be decisive. There will be red states, there will be blue states, but this time the ones that were a little too close to call last time around are going to swing around. And and I think it's you know, Donald Trump has only himself to blame. He has chosen to be this polarizing figure. Love me or hate me, you got to choose and and I think he's caused more people to hate him than love him. Uh, I think you hit the nail right on the head. I don't think this is any, uh, and although in, in the United States they certainly love their team politics, you're either on that side or this side, I think this has become more about the character, more about the personality. Do you want someone who unites or someone who is divisive? Do you think that's accurate? Yeah, I mean, I, I, and I think, do you want this person to continue representing you on the world stage? I, I, I didn't go this year, but in past years, I tend to visit Europe, and people in Europe just laugh at Donald Trump. And, and when he gives a speech, it used to be everyone held their breath when the president was doing a speech. Nobody cares now. Everyone kind of laughs at it. And is that really what you want? Now, I realize Joe Biden is not a young man. He's roughly four years older than Mr. Trump, and I realize he doesn't exactly light up a room, but he is presidential. And I think somebody who restores some of that luster to that office can't do it probably all in one term, but someone who, who behaves presidentially, who, who lets others, lets surrogates do the dirty work, keeps above the fray. I, I think people now realize that. And even the reappearance of Barack Obama on the campaign trail, um, and people even on YouTube been watching videos of past presidents, Ronald Reagan, boy, they, they, they certainly sound different than Donald Trump. And it does make you wistful for those kinds of people. So I don't think this is going to be much in doubt come Tuesday night. All right, let's move into our move back to Canada here. Uh, Obviously, we've heard lots as uh, money has to be uh, handed out to help support those getting through COVID-19. We certainly remember what it was like in the early stages of this pandemic. Now, uh, people are uh, starting to talk about the debt that we are incurring and it passing down to generations and generations. How will this affect our kids? Well, I get asked this question a lot. For some reason, I'm, I'm kind of doing a tour of Probus clubs at this moment. For those who don't know, Probus is where retired Rotarians go. I just recently spoke to the Ancaster chapter, and then I'm going to do Dundas, and then I'm doing Burlington. And this becomes a very important topic. How are we going to repay the debt? And I give them a surprise answer, and the answer is that we don't repay that debt. Now, let me give you a parallel. During the Second World War, 39 to 45, Canada was a participant, but we fought that war almost completely with borrowed money. And our debt to GDP ratio at the end of the Second World War was much higher than it is today. It was well over 100%, getting close to 150%. In other words, our our debt was bigger than our, our gross domestic product. And our government never paid that debt off. We still carry that debt to this day. Now, how did we do that? Well, we did that by growing our GDP. And then you get this ratio we like to talk about, your debt to your gross domestic product, and you get it down to something that's manageable. In this sense, it's like a corporation. Most businesses out there, most large businesses out there, have debt on their balance sheets, and they carry it for as long as they are alive, and they manage it very well. Because, and this is how it's different than you and I, you and I, there's a reckoning. At one time, we're going to die, and when we die, the people who we've borrowed money from want to be repaid. 
But with the government and with a big business, as long as you keep current on your debt, you're paying the interest, what have you, the people who've loaned you money are happy to continue loaning you that money. And that's got to be the challenge. Now, to put this in just really blank terms, we can't have another year like this year. Federal government added $300 billion. That's not a sustainable amount of borrowing at all. Next year, we don't have to get the balanced, but we've got to get the number back down to two digits, probably something on the order of 30 to $50 million. And the year after that, maybe slice that in half to $25 billion. We have to try to get it back, but the real tree trick and the reason why they spent this money was to protect uh, our economy, to keep it so that it could grow. And now that we're starting to very slowly, uh, granted, begin to emerge from the virus, much more so in 2021, let's get the economy firing and growing. If we do that, then this debt becomes manageable. And that's the, that's the I hate to call it game, but that's the plan. If we can get the economy growing again, this is all going to be very manageable in the years ahead. So in other words, it will never be paid off as long as we continue to generate revenue. Right. As long as our economy can continue to grow, we'll just we'll reduce the percentage. So we don't we don't really bring the number down. We just try right. not to add more to it. Uh, so it's a bit like this, Scott. Uh, I, I have a, a sister who borrowed money to buy a house way back in. I don't know, it was 1967, and I think the house cost $20,000. Well, even if she had some money left on her mortgage today, the house is now worth $200,000. You know, in today's dollars, it's just not that much of a deal. So the trick is to keep your debt manageable, keep it current, and then if you can grow the economy, that's really how you work your way out of it. Christia Freeland, finance minister, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, said something along the lines of, you know, we can't view this the way the older generation has viewed debt. Is that what she is talking about? Well, in a way, uh, you know, uh, as, as Canada is a country of immigrants, there are people who've come from some cultures who, who believe that you should never borrow money, that you should pay everything in cash. If you don't have enough cash, you shouldn't buy something. Uh, they really bemoan a credit-based economy. And there are other people who say, well, yes, okay, borrow some money, but make sure you pay it back. And I think those rules are fine for individuals and, in fact, very important for individuals. But companies play by a different set of rules. And in this sense, the government is like a large corporation. It can take on debt. Now, now I have to say, how are you spending that money? I particularly like it when uh, governments borrow money to invest in infrastructure. You don't have enough money for that new airport? Okay, borrow it, uh, you know, build that productive infrastructure, and all the jobs that will be created, that's great for us. If we're just borrowing money to give it to other people, that's what worries me, and that's kind of what we did this year. But I understand the extraordinary nature of COVID, but we really shouldn't be doing that for any prolonged period. We, it's fine to borrow money when you're putting it into productive infrastructure of some sort, not so good when you're simply subsidizing the lives of others. Obviously, people uh, are really feeling the weight of the uh, of the second wave, uh, wondering what it's going to be like as we uh, head into the colder months and, and through winter. That yep. being said, the one advantage we have to this crisis, unlike perhaps in a recession or a war, is we do we do more or less have an end date, and by that I mean when the vaccination is finally available, and and, and let's say it's mid spring, mid summer. Uh, you know, before it gets available to the average public. What will happen then? Will there be a, a seismic shift in some way? Because the, we'll go back to a normal, but certainly not the old normal. It will be a new normal. But what do you anticipate happening midsummer? 
So I'm going to answer your question, but just let me add one other thing that makes this different than, than an economic recession is also that we are learning about this disease. When it first came, we had very little information. COVID-19 means it was found in 2019, and we really didn't know what it was. So we erred on the size of caution, and we shut the economy down. The second wave at this point seems to be bigger than the first wave, and yet we're not broadly shutting down the economy. Instead, we've learned that we can be surgical with our shutdowns, target certain areas, certain businesses in certain areas. Yes, we've got to support those areas, but we don't have to do it as broadly. So we're learning, and I think that's another key aspect of this. Now, here's the question. Assuming we can get an effective uh, vaccine, and that's a big assumption, for a vaccine to be effective, it's got to be about 95% effective if it's only working works in half the cases, then it's not much use to us at all. Assuming we can get that vaccine tried, prove that it's safe on human, and begin to deliver it in the summer of 2021, then the challenge for the government is uptake. We need roughly something on the order of 70% of the population, 65 to 70% of the population, to agree to be vaccinated to create that thing we call herd immunity. doesn't mean COVID goes away. If you're one of those people who choose not to be vaccinated, you might still have a chance of getting the disease. But if we can get to 70% vaccination, we can go back much closer to the old normal. Now, I have lots of people I see on social media who tell me when the vaccine comes out, I'm going to insist that you go first. I don't want to go first. You go first. I want to see what happens there. So our leadership, whether it is municipal leadership, provincial, federal, we need lots of photo ops of them rolling up their sleeves, getting vaccinated. And if, for instance, they refused for some reason, but expect you and I to be vaccinated, that isn't going to work. But even people like you and I, Scott, need to demonstrate leadership at that point by being seen to take advantage of these vaccinations. And then I think it's just to continue to push till we get those numbers to the right level. Considering where we are with flu shots and obviously more people interested in that this year, some even saying that the supply hasn't kept up with the initial demand, is that any indicator what the vaccination rate will be like? In part, in part. Now, flu shots, historically, we're lucky if we can get a third of the country to voluntarily agree to a flu shot each year. This year, we might get up to 50%. And I think partly, again, we have been reminded about the consequences. I don't I don't ever want to trivialize the fact that we've lost nearly 10,000 people to COVID in Canada, almost a quarter of a million in the United States, but there are real consequences to this disease, and I think we've all been reminded of this. Whether it's going to be enough to push the rate up to closer to 70%, I don't know. And, and certainly, again, when we deal with younger people, I'm not sick, I don't have any symptoms, why should I worry about it? You're not doing it just for yourself, you're doing it for the people you come in contact with. And oddly, again, I'll tell you, Scott, this message seems to resonate much better in Canada than it does in the United States. Say what you want about Canadians being stereotypically polite and taking the blame for things, but we also seem to be a nation that get this message that I have to do some things sometimes, not just for my benefit, but for the benefit of others. I think it'll be an easier sell, but in the United States, I'm not so certain. And that's why another question you could ask is, when are we going to reopen those borders? I don't know when America is going to become a little more selfless and agree to doing these things for the good of all as opposed to the good of the individual. Hmm. Marvin Ryder has been with us, business professor at a group school of business, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. I will. Thank you. 
Scott Thompson Show. Weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.